This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, welcome again. My name is Bobby Barron. I'm the course director uh, for this course and also director of the UCSF Mini Osher Mini Medical School, and I'm uh, really pleased uh, you could be here. As I mentioned at the beginning of the uh, uh, my presentation last week, I studied nutrition before I went to medical school, and as a result of that, one of the things I've been focused on since I've been at UCSF has been the interaction between nutrition uh, and medicine, and particularly uh, obesity. So that's uh, what I wanted to talk about tonight. Before I do, though, let me, <clears throat> I'll be gone next week, but uh, let me introduce in advance uh, Katie Ferraro, who will be your speaker the next two weeks. Uh, Katie is a, a, a clinical di a nurse educator and a nurse herself and a, a real expert in nutrition and um, recently constructed and taught one of the first uh, large online courses on nutrition uh, that she'll present again later this spring uh, through the company Coursera and UCSF's collaboration. Uh, she's going to talk next week about dietary fiber and the week after that about dietary fats. <laughs> And I hope you'll join uh, her and us uh, for both of those. Tonight, though, I'm going to talk about obesity. Um, it's with some humility because I know, uh, much like our subject last week, you can't pick up the paper or turn on the television without hearing something new about obesity. So I've entitled this talk, Facts and Fictions, uh, really to serve as a little bit of a tiebreaker uh, to try to illustrate those things where there's been some controversy uh, things that are important from a public health point of view, from a dietary point of view, uh, some new evidence about medications and some new medications that will be available uh, very soon, uh, as well as uh, options for surgery that uh, continues to be in the news, I guess most recently because of the governor of New Jersey uh, having a procedure. Uh, so we'll talk about all those things. Uh, I'll show you a fair amount of uh, evidence, uh, uh, data, if you will, uh, concerning uh, uh, the pros and cons of different perspectives. Uh, it'll be fast-paced. Uh, there's a lot of information here, so uh, I'll stop periodically and see if there are any questions or, or concerns. But uh, please uh, let me know if there's anything uh, you want me to repeat or, uh, or, or uh, explain better. And again, I will mention several products tonight, both dietary and uh, medications and surgery, and I have no financial conflict of interest with any of them. So as you know, obesity is extremely common. <clears throat> this is a fact. Uh, we're now up to about a third of the population in the United States, and as you know, this is increasingly a worldwide epidemic uh, with uh, much of the developed world uh, moving in this direction. Overnutrition or obesity is now a, a more common health problem, if you will, than malnutrition. Uh, so the pictures we grew up with of starvation uh, in various parts of the planet uh, still occurs, of course, uh, but uh, overnutrition or obesity is more common. Uh, obesity, and we'll define it precisely in just a moment, is a little bit more common in women than in men. But if you count overweight, which is a slight excess of body weight, uh, men catch up. Uh, so overweight is more common in men Obesity is more common in women, but the two together are now account for about two-thirds of the population. Severe obesity, and again I'll define this in just a moment, uh, is present in about 6% of the population. 
Remember that obesity is an excess of body fat. We often think about obesity as an excess of body weight. But you can be, ha, have a higher weight because of excess muscle mass and not be obese. Uh, and you can have other things that cause an excess of body weight, such as excess fluid, for example, which obviously also is not obesity. So obesity is an excess of body fat. Now, what is not realized is that the prevalence of obesity in the United States, although it increased dramatically over the last 30 years, uh, or the, thir the 30 out of the last 40 years, has not increased in the last decade. Uh, so this is evidence from the CDC that shows the distribution of body weights in the United States comparing 2000 with 2008. And you can see the two curves are superimposable in both men and women. So this is now one fiction. Uh, that is to say we're not in the midst, we're in the midst of an obesity epidemic, but the epidemic is not expanding, at least to the population at large. So that's been a misconception, I think, um, uh, throughout much of the media. The issues in children are parallel to that in adults. Uh, the prevalence of a severe obesity is double, although the definition is a little bit different in children. Uh, but obesity in general is about half as much. So about 15 to 20 percent of children are defined by pediatricians as being obese. And again, almost a third constitute being overweight. For those of you who are mathematically minded, you may ask yourself, how can the prevalence of something that's defined as being above the 97th percentile be anything other than 3%? Right? So that's a tricky question. The reason for that is this is the 97th percentile of growth curves that we used several decades ago. And over that time, using the growth curves from the 70s or so as the gold standard, we now see these prevalence numbers. And here, too, there's been no increase, despite all the press uh, to the opposite, uh, of the prevalence of obesity uh, in children, except uh, some subsets of children. In this case, uh, severe obesity in boys. And again, this data comes from the CDC, uh, so uh, quite carefully done. This is uh, <clears throat> a data to make this point in a different way. It extends, I've shown you the data through about 2000, 2008, from about 1999. And this takes it out for another couple of years, uh, just recently published. And again, the basic point is that in general, uh, the prevalence uh, in both uh, children and adolescents in this case is quite flat. Now, there are some exceptions to that in this particular study. Uh, Mexican-American children had an increased rate. And as we'll see in the next slide or two, there are disparities in obesity prevalence uh, that are extremely important to recognize. But in general, the curve is uh, flatter than you would think by reading the newspaper or the TV. There are big disparities, though. That is to say, there are uh, segments of the population where the prevalence is, uh, is quite different. Uh, and I could have picked any uh, age and sex uh, grouping uh, and shown you these disparities, but I picked the ones where the disparities are the most extreme. Uh, so in this case, for example, in middle-aged women, uh, African-Americans and Latinos have much higher rates uh, than uh, Caucasians. 
and similarly in teenagers, uh, in this case uh, of both genders, uh, African Americans and Latinos again higher than uh, Caucasians. One of the hidden epidemics of obesity is in the mentally ill, uh, where instead of about two-thirds of the population, it's almost three, it's over three-quarters. Uh, and this is a complicated issue uh, that may overlap uh, with uh, other socioeconomic factors. But in addition, many of the powerful medications we use for the severely mentally ill are associated with weight increase. Uh, and so this is a very challenging uh, issue to deal with both from a clinical uh, condition uh, with one person in the office uh, as well as to the whole population. And as you know, there's also a geographic disparity. Uh, in this uh, famous map, series of maps from the CDC, I'm not going to show you the whole thing, which shows the different colors changing. Many of you have probably seen this uh, as the prevalence of obesity increased over time. Uh, but this is just a, a cross-section of 2010. And you can see that uh, the southeast, uh, where the color is darker, has a much higher prevalence of obesity uh, than other parts of the country. The pattern has been, though, that with each color, the rest of the country has eventually caught up, uh, although we're, we're thinking now that there may be some stability. But fortunately for us in California, uh, the prevalence of obesity is somewhat less uh, than it is particularly in the southeast and even parts of uh, the rest of the country. Now, I've been using the word obesity, uh, and so what, do we, what precisely do we mean? And how do we measure it? Our, by definition, we use what's something called the body mass index to define obesity. The reason we use the body mass index is because it is a very straight, perfect correlation between the body mass index and, and other more sophisticated measures of total body fat. And remember I said obesity is defined as an excess of body fat. So we use the body mass index, which is very easy to calculate. It's the arithmetic relationship of the uh, weight in the metric system divided by the height uh, squared. And it gives you uh, these simple numbers here in these units. Uh, and those can be broken up into categories uh, for uh, purposes of uh, clinical purpose, research purposes, public health, and the like. Normal is defined as roughly 18 and a half or 19 to 25. Underweight is less than 18 and a half. And then we get into our categories of overweight and obesity. So overweight is between 25 and 30. And then we have three classes of obesity. Uh, the dietitians in particular, the nutrition community likes to uh, differentiate obesity into class one, two, or three. Uh, class 3, or when the body mass index is over 40, is what we call extreme obesity or severe obesity, uh, or in some cases, uh, morbid obesity. We don't like the word morbid obesity, or at least I don't very much, because morbidity, which just is another word for illness, can occur at any body weight. And so you can have a normal BMI and still have obesity-related or excess fat-related complications, such as diabetes or insulin resistance or high blood pressure and the like. So morbidity, although it occurs more often uh, in over 40, 
uh, is not exclusive uh, to those with body mass index over 40. So these are best considered a severe obesity or extreme obesity. This is not weight. This is weight divided by your height squared. So it's an arithmetic manipulation of two demographic uh, you know, anthropomorphic, anthropometric features that happens to correlate with total body fat. But from the disease processing point of view, it's the excess of body fat, which is what the concern is, or associated with obesity-related illness, with the exception of some. I, I mean, arthritis, for example, of your lower extremities uh, is associated with weight more than, say, diabetes, which is associated with body fat. Uh, so there are, that's the one exception. Yes? Is there no way to really measure body fat? Yeah, many ways. Uh, so you can use uh, various scans, uh, what we call DEXA scans or MRIs or uh, computerized tomography scans or total body uh, potassium and water studies, um, some radioactive uh, uh, body distribution. So there are a variety of ways, to, and underwater weighing is one that uh, has been more popularized. Uh, all of them have advantages and disadvantages, but in the clinic or in the, in the doctor's office or from the public health point of view, it's not necessary because this correlation is so tight. Now, having said that, that's true in populations. In an individual patient, that may or may not be true. So the body mass index is the least accurate for individuals which are, very, are quite large or quite small. And so many well-known athletes, for example, who have large amounts of muscle mass may have body mass indexes uh, in the overweight or even into the uh, class one obesity range. They're not obese. They're the false positives, if you will, of this particular test. So the way we think about the body mass index in the office is that we measure it in everyone now. Uh, actually, it's part of what we call meaningful use of the electronic health record. So a height and weight needs to be in the chart on every patient. Uh, the computer now then calculates, or you can look up on a chart, the body mass index. Uh, and that, but that's the initial screening test. We then look again uh, to see which of the people with a high body mass index have a, a condition that we're concerned about and which do not. And that's a point I'll come back to. Are there other questions about this part so far? Yes. So the question was, when your height goes down, uh, d does the uh, body, is the, are the norms adjusted? That really hasn't been done from, uh, in, in, a, in a major clinical, uh, in a major way of clinical impact or importance. But I'll show you a more important point about why it doesn't matter in a, about a slide or two. Okay. And that is to say that obesity, as you age, is very different than obesity in the young youth in middle age. And I'll show you that in a different kind of way. Now, I've called this normal. And this range means that based on some initial, mostly insurance company type studies, uh, where people were measured and followed for many years. Many of you are old enough to remember the Metropolitan Life Tables and other uh, measures that we used uh, not that many decades ago. We would, give, we would look people up on a chart, and there might be, there were different charts for men and women. There were different charts based on your body frame. 
uh, and you were given an ideal body weight. Now we don't talk in terms of ideal body weights, but we talk about a range of acceptable body weights or a range of weights that's associated with the best health outcomes, because that's really what we care about. That is the lowest incidence of obesity-related illnesses. And when I say obesity-related illnesses, I mostly mean heart disease, various cancers, diabetes, stroke, uh, but also um, high, high blood pressure, cholesterol disorders, and also conditions like back pain, arthritis, uh, and, so, and many skin conditions, bad obstetric outcomes. It's a very long list. But you would think from this chart, as nice and clean as it is, that we knew that this is normal uh, and that uh, these are abnormal. But for that to be true, we'd want to have a very crisp, correlation uh, between these various categories and uh, adverse health outcomes. And this has been uh, raised, uh, this has been questioned by a variety of studies. Uh, one of the most important uh, was also by the CDC uh, back uh, about uh, several years ago now, where they took uh, the National Health and Nutrition Survey, is, uh, uh, I think I mentioned it uh, last week as well. It's our most carefully done um, epidemiologic study of the population where uh, specific samples, carefully done samples of the population done, careful measurements are made and the like. Uh, and what they did was they combined uh, three large many-year uh, uh, data sets and came up with this table. So this is a lot of numbers. So let me just orient you to this column here to start with. Uh, and so these are the BMIs. And um, we'll talk with uh, young to middle-aged individuals in this column here. And, and these are relative risks. See, these are the percent increase or decrease of death over a period of 10 to 15 years as a function of your body weight. And we use as the comparison the so-called normal weight um, uh, with 18.5 to 25. And what we see, the first thing that's a little unusual, is that if you're thin you have excess mortality. So that's a little puzzling, and so some people uh, might say, well, that's because if you're really sick and you've lost a lot of weight, that might confound this. So that's true. So what you can do then is eliminate from the study all the people who die in the next year, and you still see that increase. The other reason why this is elevated is cigarettes. So there's a higher rate of cigarette use in people who are on the thinner side than people who are normal weight and heavier. When you control for cigarettes, this number is still slightly elevated, but it's less dramatic. So in general, if you're in good health and you don't smoke and you tend to be on the underweight side, your health may be just fine. Uh, but if you have an uh, undiagnosed illness, certainly if you're losing weight, if you have a psychiatric illness and are underweight for that reason, or if you're a smoker, then being too thin is a, is a health risk. So that's interesting. The other thing that's interesting is the other extreme. So if your body mass index is over 35 and you have what we call class 2 obesity, you have about a two-fold risk of dying in the next decade or so. So we've known this for a while. But some of the earlier studies suggested that this number was high, closer to two and a half or three or some even higher. And it appears over the last several decades 
that this number has gotten smaller, probably because we've gotten better at preventing obesity-related illnesses, not or treating obesity-related illnesses with uh, uh, non-pharmacologically and particularly with medications. So, for example, if you treat blood pressure better, if obesity is associated with high blood pressure, but we do a better job of treating high blood pressure from whatever the cause, then the amount of excess mortality associated with being overweight goes down. And between cholesterol drugs and blood pressure drugs and heart disease uh, treatments and the like, uh, this number has become a little bit lower. But it's still high, it's about a two-fold risk, and, and clearly, as you get much bigger than 35, it just continues to accelerate up. So what we have, in essence, if you will, is sort of a J-shaped curve. If we were graphing the body mass index as a function of health, we have a J-shaped curve where excess mortality is associated with being on the, the thinnest uh, portion and excess mortality being on the heaviest portion. The debate then is what's the story in the middle? And it turns out that that's a little surprising and a little controversial. And what this study showed was that the people who were overweight did not have any excess mortality. <clears throat> in fact, the people who are overweight seem to do a little bit better. <clears throat> so that's a little confusing. Uh, it was a little bit of an unexpected finding. But at least in this very carefully done study, it persisted throughout the life cycle. So what that suggests, if it's true, is that our J-shaped curve has a, more, a flatter area in the middle than we might have thought in the past. That is to say, not only is there not an ideal body weight that any one person should be, but there's a range of acceptable weights that's even larger than we thought previously. And that maybe our definition of normal needs to be evolved. The other thing I wanted to uh, get back to is the point I made about what happens old, uh, later in life. So as you enter your eighth decade, and it's certainly true in your ninth decade and beyond, what we see is the shape of the curve changes. So it's no longer a J, but rather we have a marked increase in mortality associated with being thin, or as we say when we're uh, dealing with older patients, frail, as opposed to being overweight or even having class one or class two obesity where there's not very much excess mortality. And so the shape of this curve changes as you age. So although your point is an excellent one that our body mass index measurements may be falsely elevated if you have lost height, uh, it turns out it doesn't matter that much because obesity is not really a health risk in general for uh, people in their seventh and eighth, uh, ninth decades of life. Now, some of that could be misleading because maybe some of those people who are heavy earlier in life have already died, right? And this is not one group that we followed, you know, from 25 to 100, but rather different looks at populations. So, um, you know, this is complicated data to interpret. But, but I think in clinical practice, and certainly in terms of one's own life, uh, if one is a bit older, um, and a little bit overweight, uh, then that's not a health risk. 
Uh, and in fact, the main health risk is being frail. So sometimes we'll see patients who come in, uh, uh, family members, uh, uh, most commonly an older uh, mom and most commonly her daughter, although it could be a father and a son. Uh, and the daughter has uh, struggling with her weight and has a variety of obesity-related health problems and is on all sorts of dietary restrictions. And we'll talk about those in a minute. And she has mom on the same diet. Well, that's not the right diet for mom. Right? Mom can be a little bit bigger. Uh, and so it's what I jokingly call the Reese's peanut butter cup diet, uh, that sometimes for people who are too frail or, or thin, uh, can eat foods that we normally would uh, proscribe uh, when they were younger. So the peanut butter, the joke in the peanut butter cup is it's good protein and it's high in calories, um, and, uh, and we want to prevent frailty. So uh, things are different depending on our, your phase of the life cycle. Yes? I'm not sure these numbers are all that different. These numbers are all that different statistically when you, yeah, the, the samples are much smaller, um, and uh, you know it's it's arbitrary the way you split these into categories. Uh, so I wouldn't I wouldn't put a lot of um, confidence in that number. If we measure that again, this number and this number may turn out to be very similar. But the point is that as you enter your seventh and eighth decade. Uh, being thin uh, may be even more of a risk factor, especially uh, if you smoke and then uh, as you age uh, in all categories. I think there was also a question, yes. The specific issue that you raise, I think the norms were created several decades back using a different type of data set. And now with somewhat more careful or at least different data sets, we're coming up with different conclusions. Now, uh, there's also differences based on not only age, uh, but also based on uh, race and ethnicity. So in Asians, uh, the norms are even lower. So 23 is considered normal weight, less than 23. And in African Americans, the curve appears to be shifted in the other direction. So this sort of phenomenon has been observed in African Americans for some time. That is people in the overweight category by uh, typical, by uh, majority standards, uh, is not associated with excess mortality in African Americans. So there's a little bit more room for being quote overweight and having a, the longest maximum lifespan. Um, so a change is based upon uh, ethnicity as well as age. All right. So that that was an older study, and there's been a lot of debate about that, and so. Uh, there hasn't been that much conversation, except to say there have been a hundred more studies that have looked at this. And uh, just this year, uh, the folks at the CDC put all those studies together in what's called a meta-analysis, uh, try to synthesize all the data into one uh, population. It was almost a hundred studies, three million people, a ton of deaths, and they looked at, tried to develop the same relationships between the body mass index and uh, mortality. And sure enough, they showed something sort of similar. Uh, again, using the uh, quote below 25 as the comparison group, the overweight group was not associated with excess mortality in this study either. Uh, but there was an excess associated with being obese, but it wasn't that high. And interestingly, when they broke up the obese into great, uh, class 1 obesity, 30 to 35, 
versus above 35, or the two, uh, class two and class three obesity, only then did you see the excess mortality. So again, these are very complicated sorts of studies to do. Uh, all of these studies can be methodologically challenged and discussed. There are different opinions about this. Uh, but it certainly raises the hypothesis that there's an area of weights uh, that may be, no pun intended, quite wide, um, associated with at least the opportunity for the best health outcomes. So what do we do in clinical practice with this? Um, um, so a couple of things. Number one, uh, as I suggested earlier, uh, we think of the body mass index as a screening test. What we now do, uh, and your physician should do this, and if they don't, or a nurse practitioner, whoever you're seeing clinically, uh, if they don't do this, you should ask, uh, what is my body mass index, and where does it put me in terms of uh, the guidelines or the, the norms? Uh, and in the same way that we would tell you that your blood pressure is elevated or your blood sugar was elevated, your blood cholesterol was elevated, uh, we would now communicate in a normative way that your body mass index is elevated and it puts you in various categories. Um, what I usually do when I talk to patients about this is I blame it on the government. Uh, I say your body mass index is 36 and according to our federal guidelines that puts you in a obese category. It's a joke. Uh, but we try to norm, norm, normalize the uh, numbers related to uh, the categories. And then, more importantly, uh, we have to discuss with patients, first diagnose and then discuss, whether people have an elevated body mass index that's associated with obesity-related complications or not. And that's a whole other clinical conversation. First, based upon examination, it turns out that excess body fat in the upper body is worse than excess body fat in the lower body, especially in the overweight and class one obesity. By the time you get to class two and class three, uh, there's enough excess body fat that it's already a problem. Uh, secondly, uh, some people, uh, there's differences between excess body fat under the skin or excess body fat in the abdominal cavity and the excess body fat in the abdominal cavity is more associated with metabolic abnormalities. Uh, that we typically don't diagnose in the office, but one can uh, with imaging, such as a CT scan or an MR scan. We don't do that, but one could. What we do instead is we evaluate you for metabolic abnormalities. So we take your blood pressure carefully, but if you're big, you have to have your blood pressure taken with an extra large cuff. And that's why a lot of times the machines in the pharmacy or the, even some home machines don't give you an elevated blood pressure because the cuff size is too small. So the cuff needs to be large enough uh, to cover your arm the way it's shown on the cuff. Um, and so most men and about half or two-thirds of women need what we call an intermediate-sized cuff. So if you're constantly getting an elevated blood pressure in some situations and not others, it may be that the machines are using too small a cuff size. But then we, so we measure your, uh, we look at your waist circumference to see if you have signs of upper body or what we call central obesity. Uh, we measure your blood pressure and then we do some blood tests looking for fasting blood sugar, uh, fasting uh, lipid panel um, to see whether you have abnormalities associated with um, uh, the metabolic syndrome and uh, what we call obesity related complications. So if you have those, then weight loss clearly works. 
All those things get better if you lose weight. Uh, if you don't have any of those, and if, or if you have lower body obesity, or if metabolically you're normal, then I think it becomes a tougher decision as to whether to initiate uh, weight loss uh, or not. Any questions about this? I'm going to pause here for a little while and uh, move to a different subject. Yes? Yeah, so the, the question, so I'm confusing everyone by, uh, no, no, but I, I understand, and I don't know if everyone got to hear it, but um, the question, you know, is, so let me answer it and then maybe I'll explain, rather than restating the question, let me tell you what I think, which is that despite everything I've just told you, I'm just telling you the facts, or at least what we think are the facts, at this juncture. Uh, and you preface it by saying we, don't, we realize that not everything is known, which is always true. Um, but the following is also true. If you have, the, well, or the, the decision to decide who to treat for being overweight or obese is a decision that mostly the patient needs to make. All we can do as a clinician is tell you what your risks are and then help us, you assess whether this is the right tool in your toolbox for you. So if you, on the other hand, or another point, if you have any of the above, a high blood pressure, a high blood cholesterol, certain types in particular, and a high blood sugar or true diabetes, if you lose weight, those things all get better almost every time. And that's true if you're just a little overweight or a lot overweight. If you're a lot overweight and you lose 20 pounds, your blood pressure can normalize even though you're still 100 pounds overweight. And if you have diabetes and you lose 10 or 20 pounds, blood sugar gets better, even though you're still very overweight or obese. So weight loss is almost always an effective tool to treat any obesity-related condition. So we always advocate weight loss in motivated patients with obesity-related complications if they're interested. My point was a little bit different, which is that if that there are some people who are, who are way more, but are otherwise normal, and what I'm trying to say is they, they may not need to worry so much because they're metabolically normal, and this data would suggest they can have a very long lifespan even though they're overweight or class 1 obese. And I will show you some additional data in just a moment that will show you what else you can do, and you, most of you know where I'm going with this, uh, if you're overweight. Because it turns out that being fit trumps being fat. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But I don't want you to come away with the point that, that you know, Barron said, you know, I don't have to lose weight. That wasn't the point here. I run a weight, manage I, I run a weight management program, keep in mind, <laughs> right? I want people to lose weight but I want to make sure that they understand what the risks are and what the opportunities are if they lose weight compared to those people who may not need to worry about it so much and should focus on fitness and not so much the scale. That's helpful. Yes. Uh, so the question is, why is there the normal given this data? Well, again, the, those norms were set using older data. We now have new data. And the question is, are our definitions correct? So you're right. Uh, and, but this is controversial, this is brand new, um, and we're still having that conversation uh, to try to understand what is the relationship between body weight uh, and ill health. And my point is, is that it's, more, it's complicated, uh, and that, that the 
most relevant point is how you are metabolically at the weight you are, not what weight you are. And, as you'll see in a moment, how fit you are independent of the weight you are. So let me go another few paragraphs and see if uh, some of this flushes out a little bit better. I know that was complicated. So I just got a new dog, uh, so I wanted to, to show you um, our walking technique. Uh, uh, all right, so what is the relationship between body weight and, uh, and obesity and health? Uh, and as you know, uh, we have an epidemic of obesity in the United States, but uh, even maybe more dramatically, we have an epidemic of inactivity uh, or sedentary lifestyle. All right. Now, this is going to confuse you again. Remember, I entitled this talk Facts and Fictions, right? So my point here is to dispel some myths uh, and to you know, challenge you know, current thinking. Um, but here's one where I'm going to confuse you again at first because I'm about to say that exercise doesn't work. But what it doesn't work at is weight loss. Now, everything else I'm going to say about exercise is going to be great. <laughs> except that I'm going to set the dose so high that some of you are going to be upset about that. But we'll come back to that. But for those who want to use exercise as a way to lose weight, it doesn't work very well as a sole intervention. So, for example, again, this is a large number of studies that are put together to try to answer the question, that if you put someone on a low-calorie diet versus put them on a low-calorie diet plus an exercise program, do they lose more weight? And the answer is not very much. So in this study, set of studies, it was two, two or three pounds. There is a little bit of a dose effect. Uh, so if you exercise a lot more, you lose a little bit of more weight, but the number is still quite modest. Now that's not to say that you can't do the things that are done on some of the TV shows where you exercise for you know, eight hours a day uh, and, and lose weight. And that is true, but that's not how most of us exercise. So these are the kind of studies where people might get a free exercise machine in the home or a free gym membership or weekly sessions with a coach uh, and exercise you know, three or four times a week for a half an hour each time, they might do some resistance training, might be mostly cardiovascular. In those kind of normal exercise settings, uh, weight uh, doesn't change very much. That's the only bad thing I'm gonna say about exercise tonight. Um, however, even, if, even though you're not losing weight, your blood pressure, your blood fats, and your blood sugar get better. So exercise is an effective way, sort of back to your point, to treat as is weight loss, to get back to your point, to treat any, any of the major metabolic abnormalities with or without weight loss. All right. Yes. So that's a good point. So the question is, what is the relationship between exercise and, mu and body composition? Um, and it's theoretically, it depends a little bit on how you exercise and what you're eating during that regimen. So for any of you who have gone to the weight room, and tried to add muscle, you know that it's a very difficult thing to do. So adding muscle to exercise is really hard. In fact, that's why they invented steroids. <laughs> right? Because you can't just, you just can't do it very easily with just by lifting weights. Now, if you 
if you look at what weightlifters or bodybuilders do when they're trying to build muscle, they overeat. They eat excess of calories and excess of protein while they lift heavy weights. And during that phase, they can grow new muscle. They can build muscle. Uh, but the average person eating a normal calorie intake who goes to the weight room and tries to build new muscle can do it a little but not very much and not, not enough to really change your body mass index substantially. The opposite is also interesting. If you go on a low-calorie diet, you're a negative calorie balance and negative nitrogen balance, and now you can't grow new muscle even if you try because you're, you're on a weight loss. So if you're on a weight loss diet, you can't grow new muscle. So anyone who's worried about growing too much muscle by lifting weights, stop worrying. <laughs> it's impossible, uh, especially as you get older, but it's impossible for almost anyone. So, um, so weightlifting is one I think I mentioned last time. There are four components to fitness, cardiovascular uh, fitness, uh, weightlifting or resistance training or strength, uh, balance and flexibility. So you need all four. Um, we often talk primarily about cardiovascular or aerobic exercise, but all four are important. All right, now this is my favorite study of all time. Uh, it's getting old, uh, but um, it, it makes the most important point about fitness trumping fatness. <clears throat> now, so again, this was a big study. It was in men, but I'll show you a similar analogous study in women in a minute. They were studied for a long period of time. Um, and what they did was they put people on a treadmill and they very carefully measured their exercise tolerance and their oxygen consumption and the like. And they arbitrarily defined them as either fit or not fit. And they had fairly strict exercise criteria for this. Then they measured their body mass index the same way that we have earlier, uh, less than 25, less than 30, and over 30. And they used as the comparison point the people who are normal weight and fit. And the first thing they showed, which was not that new, was that those who are normal weight and not fit died twice as often. So a sedentary lifestyle is as much of a risk factor as being obese. Doubles your risk of early mortality. In fact, if you're both obese and not fit, then the risk associated with obesity is even greater. But here's the, the most interesting corner of this slide that the people whose body mass index was over 30, but who were fit, did fine. Okay. Now what's really interesting about this particular study, and not true in all studies, is that the people who were obese but fit did better than even people who were normal weight and not fit. Not every study shows that. But what every study shows is that people who are obese, who are fit, do better than people who are obese that are not fit. And so I'll come back to this point at the end, but my first rule of thumb, whenever I see a patient who's overweight, um, whether I diagnose it or they're coming for advice, the first thing I say is the goal is to be as fit as you can be at the weight you're at. So fitness trumps fatness. Um, here's an example of the other type of study which was, a, this is a nurse's health study, but uh, it's another example where they just uh, ask people, this is more a questionnaire, so it's a little less accurate than uh, measuring people's fitness. But they showed roughly the same thing, that in people, uh, this is women now, in women over 30, body mass index of 30, who say they exercise more than three and a half hours a week, 
uh, did better than people who exercised less than an hour a week. And this kind of consistent trend uh, is seen in uh, this, almost all of these studies. Now in this case, what I showed you before isn't true. In other words, the people who are over 30 who exercise a lot are not doing better than the people who are thin who, who don't exercise, but it's getting close. So it's not quite as dramatic as the earlier study. Uh, but again, the take-home point primarily is that if you're overweight or obese, then exercising, even though it doesn't cause weight loss, is associated with uh, improved outcomes, both in terms of the things we can measure and in terms of life expectancy. A few words about diet. Again, I'm dealing with controversies here. So just one little bit of basic nutrition. Um, <clears throat> Uh, this turns out not to be so easy. I changed the slide a couple of times because the numbers aren't perfect. But in general, remember I said last uh, week that most of you need close to about 2,000 calories a day, uh, give or take 300-400 calories. Um, but this is, the, this is and, and that's true unless you're really big or really small. Uh, so, so this statement is roughly true. Um, but it becomes less true if you're already very overweight or very thin. But that is to say, if you measure your weight in pounds and multiply by some number, actually a little less than 15, you get pretty close to how many calories a day you need to maintain your body weight. Um, if you measure your weight in kilograms, it's a little more accurate because then it's 30 calories per kilogram. And that gives you, that assumes that again, you're relatively normal size and have uh, some degree of moderate activity. Uh, so there's a lot of conditional statements in this, uh, but it's not a bad rule of thumb. But to be honest, if most of you look, you know, most of you use about 2,000 uh, or a little bit less if you're a woman or a little bit smaller, you'll be close. Now, the more important rule of thumb is that if we take a pound of fat off any one of us and, heat, and put it in a calorimeter, it generates about 3,500 calories of heat. So a pound of fat is equal to about 3,500 calories. So to lose a pound of fat, you need an energy deficit of 3,500 calories. So that is to say, if you need 2,000 calories, and you eat 1,500 for seven days, and you're minus 500 every day, times seven days, that's 3,500 calories, and you should lose one pound. Now, if you lose more weight than that, you're losing water which happens early in a weight loss um, diet, early on a weight loss diet. But this is a useful rule of thumb to remember that 500 calories less than you actually are estimated to need is associated with about a pound of uh, weight loss. So you can see that if you're on the smaller side to begin with, but overweight, say you're short but overweight, and you only need maybe 1,700 calories to break even, and now we put, want to create an energy deficit to 500 calories. Now you're on 1,200 calories a day. That's a low number, and that's hard to achieve. And so people who are older who need less calories, people who are smaller who need less calories, people who have less muscle mass who need less calories have a much harder time in creating an energy deficit. So uh, that's one of the, uh, the facts here of why weight loss is so challenging. But this arithmetic is good to know. All right, now, which is the best weight loss diet? Um, again, many of you are old enough maybe to remember the old uh, Johnny Carson shows, uh, late night TV, and 
uh, Atkins would come on the show and say, you know, we need diets that are high in fat, and we should be eating bacon and Bernays sauce and so forth. And then Stillman would come on and say, no, no, it's not fat, it's protein. And then they would have a food fight. And then, <laughs> then the Scarsdale guy, Scarsdale diet guy came on and he would say it was also low carbohydrate, but then he got assassinated by his assistant, who was also his wife or mistress, I forget. Uh, so this idea of eating low carbohydrates has been around for decades. Um, and the medical community has poo-pooed it for all of those decades until the most recent one. So if, if a patient came into an average physician's office about a decade ago, uh, or 30 years before, and said they were about to start the Atkins diet, which is a strict, not so strict anymore, but originally a very strict low carbohydrate diet, which tended towards higher fatty foods and higher protein foods, the, di the doctor would probably say, I recommend against that. In fact, in that era, if, uh, so if you came into many doctor's offices and said I was, I was going on a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet, again, many doctors might have said, I don't recommend that. Um, WW in this slide stands for Weight Watchers or a balanced diet. Uh, the zone is a low glycemic index diet. Uh, but the take-home point of this slide is, in this very nicely done study, which compared these four different diets, low-carb, high-carb, and low-fat, balanced, and uh, also sort of low-carb, balanced, sort of intermediate. The bottom line was, first bottom line, was that not, a lot of people couldn't finish the study no matter what diet they were on. <laughs> That's point number one. Point number two, most of them didn't lose a whole lot of weight. And point number three is that there was no difference. And so this study was one of about two dozen that have now been published that basically say that the composition of the diet, or what we, what we defined last session as the macronutrients, the relationship between carbohydrate, protein, and fat in the diet, is not a very strong predictor of weight loss. Now, there may be other health consequences of different macronutrient choices, but in terms of weight loss, it's really calories that predict success. You have to create that energy deficit. And the reason why people go on an Atkins, and if you go on an Atkins diet or a, or a South Beach diet, say, which are low carbohydrate, uh, people don't count calories. But if you then just teach them how to do the diet and give them support and they adhere to the diet and then you measure how many calories they're eating, they're eating about 1,400 calories a day, which for most people is a weight loss dose. So it's just a tactic to get people to eat less calories. Now, we'll talk later in the, in the course about some nutrients that have specific uh, health, uh, negative health effects, but as far as weight loss, you still have to create an energy deficit to lose weight. And in this particular study, uh, weight loss was associated with adherence, not the diet type. Uh, each group lost the same distribution of weights. And what was really surprising, because the Atkins diet was very high on fat, uh, and in this era we were still teaching people to eat low fat predominantly, uh, cholesterol uh, improved with weight loss on all the diets. If people lost weight, their cholesterol got better, independent of what they were eating to get there. And the part of the reason for this is that when you're eating 1,400 calories a day, or 15 or 16, it almost doesn't matter what you do. You're still not taking in that many grams of fat. Remember, fat was nine calories per gram. You just can't get that many in and still achieve 12, 1,400 calories a day. 
So it turns out a low calorie diet, even if the percent of fat is high, works out to be just fine in the short term, at least as far as your, um, and in these particular studies, there was no change on blood pressure or glucose, but that's because they didn't lose enough weight. If they lost more weight, they would have. This was a similar study, uh, not to belabor the point, uh, but a little bit bigger. They put people in the hospital this kind of time and monitored them very quickly, I mean carefully. Uh, <clears throat> uh, again, they manipulated um, the fat between 20 and 40 percent, the protein between 15 25 percent, and the carbohydrates from 65 to 35. So all consistent with what we talked about last week as the new broad macronutrient suggestions in their uh, dietary guidelines, um, but, uh, but trying to mimic some of these popular diets. And again, it was exactly the same thing. Um, uh, weight loss here was a little bit better, but remember these were people who were captive uh, on metabolic wards, um, and so they, they lost a little bit more weight, uh, uh, or then, um, and, uh, and then uh, uh, there was no difference based on the macronutrient composition. And again, uh, attendance, which in this case, I'm sorry, this was an outpatient, it wasn't, this wasn't inpatient, this was outpatient but highly supervised. Uh, but attendance was highly correlated with weight loss or adherence, again, rather than the type of diet. So we've liberalized what we think about weight loss diets now, and it turns out it doesn't really matter what macronutrient composition you have as long as um, you eat low calories. Now one of the provocative areas here is, uh, and this is not proven, uh, but there are those that think that although what I just said is true in people with normal metabolic, so if you're overweight and relatively normal metabolically, uh, you can do whatever you want, but there's some evidence to suggest that if you really have diabetes or insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome, a low carbohydrate diet may be more effective. Uh, but that's, again, still hypothesis. Uh, but we definitely use more low carbohydrate diets now than we used to. And remember, if you think back about what we talked about last week, where I pointed out, at least as a population, where, where much of the excess calories is coming from, just in terms of our food choices, remember a lot of it was refined carbohydrate. So simple sugars uh, and refined, car and refined uh, grains. Uh, so remember that list of all the foods, uh, that was where most of the excess calories uh, or the most calories were coming from. Now sometimes what we do in medicine is we have a more urgent situation so we can put people on uh, stricter diets. Uh, many people, the standard teaching is you should never eat less than 1,200 calories a day. Uh, but we will put people on 800 calories a day if there is some reason why they need to get weight off quickly. Um, and in fact, when we do that, people lose uh, twice as much weight. So VLCD stands for a very low calorie diet or an 800 calorie a day diet uh, versus a 12 to say 1,400 calorie diet. Um, and, you, and if you do the arithmetic, if, you put, if someone needs 2,000, you put them on 1,500, they're going to lose a pound a week. If you put them on 1,000, they're going to lose two pounds a week. Right? And so the arithmetic, the thermodynamics would suggest that they would lose weight twice as quickly. And in fact, they do. When we look long term at the difference between these two approaches, they're not that different. Uh, so we use these approaches in people who need to lose a lot of weight before surgery, uh, before spine surgery, to get on a transplant list. 
uh, joint replacement surgery, or really bad metabolic situations, very bad diabetes, uh, and so on. Uh, but this is a tool in our armamentarium, uh, and we give people prepared diets. They're not making food choices anymore, uh, but they can get weight off much more quickly because we can control their nutrient intake uh, much more precisely. Um, now, uh, although these are the average numbers, again, uh, every number I've shown you tonight has a distribution, a Gaussian distribution around the mean, around the average. So there are always people who do worse than the mean would suggest, and there are always people who do a lot better. Uh, so in my own experience, when I think about the people I know who have lost 100 pounds, um, other than with surgery, almost all have done so on this more dramatic kind of diet, uh, the very low-calorie diet. People who are very overweight, have severe obesity, but don't want to have surgery, or want to try something dramatic pre-surgery, this is an option. So this is a medical alternative to surgery. Um, and I haven't shown you this, but I, I think I took out that slide, but on the, in a community, if people come into our regular clinic and do a regular weight loss diet with a, super, with a gr good dietitian, a support group, and an exercise program, on average, people lose about 7% of their body weight. So if you start at 200, it's about 15 pounds, right? On the very low calorie diet, they lose about double that, about 15, 16%. And with surgery, they lose double that again, about 30%. So that's how I remember it, about 7%, 15%, 30% between regular diets, the very low calorie diet, and surgery. So a few weight loss bottom lines. Uh, the type of diet doesn't really matter for weight loss as long as it's low in calorie. Sticking to the diet does matter. Calories trump macronutrients, at least as far as weight loss. Uh, but as you're picking foods, just because I've given you a lot of license to eat whatever you want, uh, make sure you're eating the kind of uh, nutrient-dense foods that we talked about last week. Uh, and then there are some very practical tips. Um, um, in terms of motivation and readiness to change. Uh, we talked about setting realistic expectations, making sure people realize uh, what's up ahead for them. Um, uh, choose a diet that's easy to follow and compatible with your lifestyle and one that you can follow forever, and I'll show you why in a minute. Uh, there are various techniques available to control portion size. We talked a little bit about plate method uh, last time. Uh, we talked a lot about vegetables, fruits, and whole grains. And, and weight maintenance is a different process than weight loss and one that requires its own strategy, and we'll come to that in just a moment. Fed up with how her diet is going, Charlene takes a more serious aim at her target weight. All right, so separate in your mind weight loss from weight maintenance. Because if you're going to lose weight, whether it's 7% or 10% or more, and then gain it back, you haven't done anything for yourself, right? So the idea is to lose weight and keep it off. So the question is, how do you do that? So one of the ways we know about that is from something called the National Weight Control Registry, which is a, a registry of individuals, uh, so-called successful dieters, if you will. These are people who have lost weight and kept it off. To get into this, you need to have lost 30 pounds and kept it off for a year. But in fact, most of these people lost 33 kilograms, that is twice as much, uh, and kept it off for much longer. Uh, this particular group is mostly uh, Caucasian women, so the generalizability is limited. But interestingly, a lot of them are people who 
were heavy as a child. So this idea that if you were heavy as a child, you can never lose weight is not true. Uh, in fact, these, uh, several, many of these patients did fine. So then we look at these people and try to say, all right, what do they got that the rest of us don't have? You know, what is their skill set? What are their behaviors that predict whether they can lose weight or not? And there are several features, but there are three that I'll highlight. And these are, the, in my opinion, the most important. Number one, they exercise a ton. Uh, and for women, that's 2,500 calories a week, a bit more for men. It calculates out to about an hour of moderate intensity per day. Um, and very few of them report uh, little physical activity. So when you read from the uh, government, from the Institute of Medicine and others, that people should exercise an hour a day to maintain their weight or to prevent weight gain, Interestingly, this is the data from which that comes. So this is that's a bit of a leap to say that that's a recommendation for the population at large. But it's certainly true that in people who have lost weight, to keep it off, you need to exercise a ton. Uh, my own teaching is that uh, you should never go to bed today without figuring out how you can exercise tomorrow. And that exercise should be biblical. That means six days a week and one day of rest. If you want to exercise seven days a week, that's fine, as long as you can do it without hurting yourself. Um, but if you do the arithmetic and figure out how much you have to do in order to get up to those numbers, it's a much higher dose than most people uh, are used to hearing. So this idea of you know, three days a week, 20 minutes in the gym may improve your fitness in a measurable way, but it is not associated with either weight loss, which I've shown you before, or weight maintenance. So this is aerobic exercise, but keeping in mind that True fitness includes strength training, balance training, and flexibility also. Now, again, this is not the kind of thing, if you've been sedentary, that you should do tomorrow. You know, this is an aspiration. Um, uh, but it does show, and again, it's not a prescription even as much as it is just an observation that this, these successful people, it's what they do. And so if we're trying to make recommendations, again, a little bit of a leap, uh, but I think trying to get in the habit of exercising every day or six days a week um, in a thoughtful way is the way to go. If you're just starting, it doesn't matter. Um, the, in the intensity doesn't matter, but the behavior of doing it every day and doing it for a, a period of time, either all at once or spread out, is most important. So the way to start is to do what you can do comfortably and keep doing that, just do it more often and more and for longer. All right, secondly, they eat a diet low in calories and it works out to about 1,400 calories a day. Now, if I had made this an audience response question as I sometimes do, uh, and I said that this person needed 2,000 calories to break even and I put them on a 1,400 calorie diet to lose weight, how many calories would they need to maintain that weight? Many of you would have said, 1,800, 2,000, something like that, most of you would have realized it might be a little bit less. But most people don't realize how much less it's got to be. Um, and so I, uh, I, I thought for a while, I was interviewed by the Chronicle many years ago about popular diets, and they said, after I reviewed all the diets, they said, so what's, what, what diet book are you going to write, Dr. Barron? I said, well, I'm going to write the diet book called the Forever Diet, right, which is uh, because the diet you start on for weight loss is the diet you have to eat forever to keep the weight off. Of course, I knew no one would buy a book called The Forever Diet, so uh, I didn't write the book. But 
but that's the principle. So you have to understand as you go on a low-calorie diet to lose weight, if you want to keep that weight off, you have to plan to stay low, lower calories uh, indefinitely. Otherwise, you'll gain the weight back. These individuals tend to be uh, grazers rather than bingers. Um, that works for some people, but not all people. You know, it depends what kind of eater you are. Some people, if they're exposed to food multiple times a day, eat more calories, so that wouldn't work. So it depends on your, whether you're an emotional eater or a stimulus eater or so on. Um, but they tended to eat small amounts throughout the day. And they monitor their weight, so when they start to regain, they intensify their program. So this uh, idea that you're going to exchange your bathroom scale for a box of cereal, I don't know if you remember that commercial. Um, Actually, the actor was one of the uh, was the son of one of our nursing professors. It was very funny, uh, but that's that was a dumb commercial because you want to keep your scale uh, because you need to monitor your weight just like you would your blood pressure or your uh, diabetes. Let's move on because I want to talk about medications and surgery and still get home in time. All right, so <laughs> this is what we know about energy balance or about appetite, uh, and I'm not going to review this uh, except to make the point that as any good medical student knows that when the professor shows a slide with this many arrows it's because the professor doesn't have a clue <laughs> as to what's really going on. The second point I'll make is that remember these are all different factors controlling appetite. Appetite can only go in one of two directions, either stimulate or suppress. And the take home point here is that there are many pathways. And when there are many pathways in biology it's biolog biologically redundant pathways. What we know is that when one pathway is blocked, other pathways compensate. And again, as I suggested earlier, the, we are wired to preserve our body weight, right, for all the evolutionary reasons you, you can think of. So therefore, when we're thinking about medications, the idea that we would find some pill that would block one of these as a way to cut appetite doesn't make that much sense because there are too many pathways. And this doesn't even begin to th talk about the factors about energy burning on the other side of the equation. And as a result of that, that's what we've seen from studies of weight loss medications. Uh, I won't go through all of these except to make the point that the amount of weight that you lose is quite modest. Uh, and actually fairly similar and maybe a bit even no more than what we see from a normal well done diet. And so um, the advantages of medications are quite modest. Um, so Fen-Phen, uh, and, and don't get confused here, this doesn't mean that Fen-Phen was three times better than Orlistat, because uh, these are different kinds of studies. They're not comparing drug to drug, but drug to sugar pill. Um, and so they're, uh, but the point is more that none of them are associated with a whole lot of weight loss. Um, and you don't recognize any of these names because most of these are no longer on the market. That's not quite true. Fentermine still is, Orlistat is over the counter, and fluoxetine uh, is Prozac. But just to show some examples of how hard it is to design a weight loss drug, this is my personal favorite. This is uh, Rimonabant, uh, which is a cannabinoid receptor blocker. Okay? Uh, who knew? we had cannabinoid receptors. <laughs> but we do. And some of you may know people who use cannabinoids. <laughs> and they have probably told you 
that when they use cannabinoids, their appetite is increased. And therefore, it was logical to think if we blocked the cannabinoid receptor, people's appetite would go down, right? And sure enough, it did. Uh, and so people who took this particular medicine lost about 5% of their weight. It wasn't great, but it was something. Um, and uh, and they, so they lost weight because they had less of the munchies. The problem is that your friends have probably also reported that when they use cannabinoids, they feel good. And so when you block cannabinoids, you feel bad. Uh, and in fact, uh, people had all sorts of neurological and psychiatric symptoms. <laughs> and there were suicides uh, and depression. Uh, and the drug company decided not to market, the, to sell their drug in the United States. So this was one of many kind of stories like this. Now, I'll show you some more stories like this in just a moment. But uh, the this is the best study of weight loss drugs. And the point here is that all the other studies I'm going to show you look at people uh, on a diet and exercise. Their weight is either stable or they're losing some weight. And then they get a, a placebo or sugar pill or the drug. And then you're looking for the difference between the sh what happened while they were on the sugar pill and what happened on the drug. And that's where you get that 5% or so. But weight loss is not really the end here, is it? What we really want is that people who are treated for obesity have less strokes and heart attacks, diabetes, cancers, and so on. So we don't really just care about the number of weight loss, because that's what we call an intermediate variable. Um, so for example, you could, uh, there are drugs that we don't use anymore, for example, that make bones thicker. And so you would think if you made bones thicker, you would have less hip fractures. But in fact, those drugs cause more hip fractures. And there are many drugs like that out there where the intermediate goes in the right direction, but the outcome goes in the wrong direction. And so this was a case of that. This was a drug called Cybutramine or Meridia. Uh, and they did a very nice study. They took a large number of patients. They were pretty high risk. They gave them a sugar pill versus the drug. They followed them for several years. And they were making a, a, a bet, uh, funded by the drug company, they were making a bet that if they could prevent heart attacks and strokes with this drug, everyone would be on it, right? This would be like the new uh, statin drug. Uh, and in fact, what happened was the opposite. The people who got the drug had a 16% increased risk of, uh, non, of heart attacks and strokes. Uh, and so that was bad news, and uh, they ended up pulling the drug off the market. But, but the point here is... Uh, that this is the kind of study that we would want, I think, if we were really going to be uh, widespread in our use of uh, weight loss medications. One of the new drugs that's around is called Locaserin, uh, uh, um, and it's uh, uh, also uh, blocks one of the receptors. It's in the same category as dexfenfluramine and fenfluramine from back in the fenfen days. Uh, and again, you can see a lot of people drop out of the study. The amount of weight loss is quite modest. So again, about six, seven, eight pounds. So not really anything that's worth most people taking, spending $200 a month uh, on a drug that has side effects as those shown here. Uh, the older versions of this drug, like fenfluramine and dexfenfluramine, had very adverse effects on the heart, on heart valves, and also the lungs. And that was why those drugs were pulled. So far, we haven't seen that, but this has only been used in a small number of patients. 
So the FDA in uh, two, October 2010 was a particularly bad month for drugs. Uh, Cybutramine uh, was pulled off the market. Uh, Locuserin um, was not approved by the FDA because there were extra uh, breast cancers in uh, animals. Uh, and then there was another drug, which was a little surprising because there was two drugs that had both already been approved, uh, fentramine and topiramate. And the trade name was Cunexa, and it wasn't approved initially because, again, there was a lot of sleep, anxiety, depression uh, greater than with placebo. But they were mostly concerned about an increased heart rate because that's what Cybutramine had done, and they thought maybe that was associated with having the strokes and heart attacks and also birth defects, so cleft palate. So originally, this drug was not approved, um, and then uh, Locuserin went back to the FDA a couple years later after another round of studies, and they just barely made it in. Um, they didn't make, one of the criteria was having more than 5% of weight loss. They didn't make that one, but they did meet the criteria of having a certain percentage of their patients losing five pounds or more. So they just made it in, um, and uh, still uh, some lingering uncertainties. Uh, this drug was approved a year ago. The trade name is Belvic, but it's not released yet. But it will be released uh, next month um, as Belvic. Uh, they had uh, some. It's slow, they got slowed down in the DE, in the uh, FDA on terms of how they were classifying the drug. But it will be available in June. But this drug is really doesn't work. It's about you know three percent body weight difference. It won't be covered by insurance. It'll probably be priced. I haven't seen the pricing, but it'll probably be a couple hundred dollars a month. And I don't think this is going to be a very popular drug. The other drug uh, that's a big candidate is uh, the fentramine topiramate uh, combination. They also did a second study and they got better weight loss results, but they still had increased heart rate and increased cleft lip. But the FDA, uh, because there was really a lot of pressure to uh, release a, a weight loss drug, uh, did, uh, did accept this drug. Uh, the panel approved it and then the, uh, the whole FDA approved it. Um, but they made them do a bigger study. This number is now up to 16,000 uh, 16, subjects to look at cardiovascular outcomes. Uh, but this drug is now available. Uh, they changed the name. It's no longer Cunexa. Uh, it's now Cusimia. Uh, but uh, actually, it's, I spelled it wrong here. It's uh, Cusimia with the S-Q-S-Y-M-I-A. Um, originally, it was only available through mail order, uh, but they appealed, and um, soon it'll be available at your local pharmacy. Um, but it has a long list of side effects too. And this is a little unfair because all medications have lists of side effects like this. And it really only matters whether you get the side effect. Um, but, uh, and so if you're losing a lot of weight, you might be willing to put up with a little bit of you know, bad loss of taste or constipation or dry mouth, but um, maybe not. Uh, but there is fetal harm, and so doctors have to learn how to do, make sure that uh, this is not used in women of reproductive age. Uh, there are some psychiatric effects and several others. So uh, we'll see how this drug goes, but it is available. And uh, um, uh, the use thus far has been less than expected. So if you follow the business of weight loss drugs, this drug has been slow to get going, uh, but it is available. And it may be that having it in local pharmacies will allow it to do better than this mail order system that uh, didn't work for people. Bunch of other drugs are in the pipeline, so this will say uh, a common conversation piece. Uh, this is another one um, that they didn't approve, uh, again, because of concerns of cardiovascular disease. Um, 
but it may uh, uh, resurface, and then a variety of other drugs. So this is something that will continue. But again, I think that what's the future of this is probably combinations of drugs, as we do with uh, high blood pressure, diabetes, and many other uh, common diseases, uh, because single pathways are probably not going to be effective. So uh, we tend not, in San Francisco, uh, not to use a lot of weight loss drugs. Uh, in our uh, weight management program here at UCSF, we use virtually none. Uh, but again, we remain interested in to see when uh, newer drugs become available. But again, we're going to try to have a higher standard because uh, we really want medications that will uh, ultimately save lives. All right, just let me end with a few words about surgery, uh, and we'll get you out of here. So uh, the key point about weight loss surgery is that uh, there's sort of two major mechanisms that they work. One is you can either make the pouch of the stomach smaller uh, to about 30 to 60 uh, cc's, about the size of a big walnut, uh, or you could prevent the absorption of calories by the intestines uh, and so that you lose weight through uh, what would otherwise be called malabsorption. Most of the popular surgeries fall into this category. The old surgery, the GI bypass, uh, had a lot of metabolic complications, and that fell out of favor very quickly. Well, not very quickly, but very severely. There, and there are a few others that are similar that are popular in some parts of the country and in and some parts of the world. But 80% of surgeries in the United States uh, are um, the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. Um, and this is mostly restrictive, but depending on how long you make what's called the limb, uh, you can make it a little malabsorptive. So this is a cartoon that shows the ruin why. So you uh, cut off a piece, of, you cut uh, the stomach, you create the small pouch, uh, and then you bring up a part of the intestine and attach it to the esophagus. So the food then bypasses the stomach, goes down here uh, into this, uh, 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 what would have normally been uh, uh, intestine, and you're bypassing uh, the junction between the stomach and the duodenum, you're bypassing the duodenum in the first part of the jejunum. Um, and depending on how long you make this part, the so-called rulem, uh, uh, you can make it somewhat malabsorptive. But typically, uh, it's working through a restrictive mechanism. Uh, the procedure uh, that uh, the governor had uh, was gastric banding, uh, or it's called lap band. Uh, shown here, uh, you put a silastic band around the top of the stomach, and again, you create a restriction that way, and you can make it uh, sort of tighter or less tight uh, by working through a, a pump that's placed subcutaneously. The final one that's uh, popular, this is another picture of the, of the bypass, but the other one that's uh, gaining in popularity is called the sleeve gastrectomy. Um, this is popular. It's a little bit technically easier to do for some of the surgeons uh, who don't do these all day long. Uh, and they actually uh, resect, um, I'm sorry, they uh, make the stomach smaller uh, and don't change the anatomy quite as much. Uh, and so this has uh, become a bit more popular. This, uh, the, the three types of surgery, um, the gastric bypass, the sleeve, here it says vertical banded gastroplasty, which is different, but the sleeve is in the same category, and, uh, and the band uh, all work, but the gastric bypass is about twice as effective as the band, and the sleeve, which isn't shown here, but uh, just been published to be intermediate also. 
Um, so, um, so this is the easiest one to do, has the least side effects or the least short-term side effects. Uh, the sleeve would be second and the gastric bypass is the biggest procedure, uh, but it's also the most effective. When you, get, when you take off a lot of weight, no matter how you do it, uh, the illnesses associated with obesity get better. Uh, so this is an example of the different surgeries by different diseases. But the take-home message is that if you lose a lot of weight, all these conditions get better. And that sort of speaks to the point earlier about behavior, that uh, it is the weight loss that's associated with the improvement, whether it's surgical or otherwise. The question is, uh, has always been, what's the side effects? So we know that it works. The question is, is it worth it? Uh, and what do you have to go through uh, for this to work? And so typically the way the surgeons uh, uh, talk about data is 30-day mortality, is you're likely to be dying in 30 days. And the mortality rate is, is 0.3%, so three out of 1,000. Uh, and that's not bad for uh, surgeries. Um, it's a sort of similar to many common elective surgeries. Um, and the lap band is the safest in the short term. And unfortunately, though, the longer term, it has a lot of uh, complications and requirements to redo the operation, convert it to a ruin Y, and so on. Um, and it, it becomes progressively more complicated if you have to do an actual incision uh, in a larger patient. So the patients with uh, larger amounts of obesity uh, require open procedures and uh, the mortality rate is a little higher. If you can get it done with a laparoscope, as most of them are now done at a place like this, uh, the mortality rate is lo quite low. The issue, though, is that if you look not beyond mortality and look at not only mortality, but also uh, what's called um, thromboembolic disease, that is blood clots in the leg or pelvis or lungs, the need for another operation or the need for a prolonged hospital stay, now we're talking about 1 in 25. Uh, so it's a little bit more complicated, and again, it varies based on the kind of procedure. And if you do it in older people, and you do it at a community in a, in a place that doesn't do as many as a center of excellence like uh, ours, uh, the mortality rate, even 30 days, is 1 in 50, and at one year, it's 1 in 20. Um, and so as a result of this, the surgeons have gotten more and more selective of who they'll do this operation on. So if you look at the studies, the, the operations are most commonly done in younger patients who are well insured, uh, more often Caucasian than other race ethnicities uh, with private insurance, because uh, they're the, uh, typically a lower risk than a community-based uh, Medicare uh, population. Uh, do, do these operations save lives? They do. But you have to do a lot of operations in order to save a life. So this is not so much for life saving as much as it is to improve the conditions associated with the excess weight. And because we're changing the gut around, um, you develop some uh, nutritional abnormalities. And depending on the type of procedure you do, you may have to take a variety of vitamins and minerals um, after the procedure lifelong uh, because your anatomy is now uh, rearranged, if you will, and you're not absorbing vitamin B12, for example. You need stomach uh, um, factors, uh, iron, you need uh, stomach acid. Uh, others are uh, absorbed in the duodenum, the early part of the intestine, and so on. 
All right, so this is my last two slides and then we'll uh, break for questions. There was a big article in the New England Journal about a couple of months ago and I made the slide um, uh, called, it was called Facts and Fictions or Myths About Obesity and Something and it was written by, the, by uh, a number of individuals with ties to a variety of industry sources. So I think there are many aspects of the article that have been questioned. Uh, but they had a nice list, I thought, of uh, what they called facts at the end of the article. And I thought I would just, uh, this would uh, give me a chance to talk about things we haven't spoken about yet. So the, in yellow is my editorial comment, and white is what they wrote. So one of the things was that environmental changes are beginning to work, uh, and this is very exciting. Uh, but from uh, studies of school programs and community programs in places like Philadelphia and New York and Los Angeles and some uh, states uh, and the like, uh, we're beginning to see, I already showed you, some rates are beginning to stabilize and some rates of obesity are actually going down. So we're going to have to approach obesity something more analogous to the way we've done with tobacco. Uh, this one-on-one, -on -one, patient by patient uh, approach is going to work for some in the office, but as a society, if we want to get to this, we're going to need larger environmental uh, changes. And I know Dr. Lustig uh, will talk about that in a couple of weeks. Diets work, but not for long in most people. Uh, but they can work for long in some people. Uh, and again, if you remember, it's a Gaussian distribution, but uh, so there are a few people in the tail. 10 or 15% of patients who do very well with diets, uh, but you have to stay on the forever diet uh, and exercise a ton in order to do that. Exercise improves health independent of weight change and aids in weight maintenance. I've shown you that data and that's an enthusiastic yes. The continuation of conditions that promote weight loss also promote weight maintenance, and that was the point I made. You need a, a, lot of, a high dose of exercise and continued a low calorie diet. For children, programs that involve parents and home promote greater weight loss. Uh, I think that's not totally proven, but it is consistent with my last slide last week uh, where I talked about having dinner with your kids. Uh, and this takes it a step further of involving family uh, in uh, not only uh, weight loss, but also nutrition in general. Provision of meals and meal replacement products promote greater weight loss in the short term. I showed you that data. That is very effective if we need to get a lot of weight off quickly but the longer-term outcomes are more uh, equalized. Medications can help achieve meaningful weight loss for as long as agents can be used. Well, that's one that's a question mark, and I think I've shown you what some of these, the issues are here. What we really need to know is what about the longer-term clinical outcomes? Will these drugs ultimately prevent strokes and heart attacks? And that we don't really know. And in fact, the only data we have is the opposite. And surgery results in long-term weight loss and reductions of diabetes and mortality. Uh, yes, uh, but with complications in some, uh, or, or in some cases, many. And you have to operate on a lot of people to get the benefit. So surgery is uh, a really good tool uh, for a small number of patients. And one of the hardest things for physicians like us, like me, who are not surgeons, is trying to figure out who's right for surgery. Uh, always a, a tough decision. So here are my goals of management. Uh, I mentioned these already. Uh, be as fit as you can be, uh, as fit as possible at your current weight. Uh, be biblical about your exercise. Prevent further weight gain. That is a sufficient goal for the vast majority of you. Uh, and for a small number of patients, if you get good skills at this, then we can start talking about what the options are for weight loss. But I've suggested, as I've suggested, there aren't that many great ones. So this is really hard, which is why these two goals 
are so important because they're much more achievable. Eat less and exercise more. That's the most ridiculous fad diet I've heard of yet. Um, but it's still where uh, a lot of us uh, end up. Uh, remember, one of my messages from last week is uh, we can't always make the best choice, but we can make better choices. Um, and again, uh, as you're walking out tonight, think about how you can exercise tomorrow. So thank you very much for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.